You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, I sit down with science fiction author, activist, journalist, and blogger, Cory Doctorow. We talk about pitfalls in the Internet of Things and his work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation to reform the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, a source of many of those IoT pitfalls. Corey also talks about why we should treat human beings as things that are good at sensing as opposed to things that need to be sensed. Enjoy the show. You have a talk titled, The Internet of Things That Do What You Tell Them. What are some of the pitfalls we're facing now and what might be driving or contributing to those? So uh, in a kind of normal world, if you do something obnoxious with your products that your customers don't want, one of your competitors will probably unbreak your stuff, right? Like if you uh, charge a lot for, for the cartridges with your inkjet printer, but you make an otherwise good printer, you'd expect a competitor to step in and offer cheaper inkjet cartridges. In fact, there's like this whole economics of explaining that where you have this equation that's kind of like the net ex- expected expenditure uh, over time on your printer for cartridges and you know how much money someone can expect to make by making third-party cartridges. And the economists can actually model this pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so in the absence of kind of any other confounding factors, Obnoxious stuff that vendors do tends to self-correct. But there is an important confounding factor, which is that in 1998, Congress passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And in order to uh, try and contain unauthorized copying, they made it a felony to break a lock that protects access to a copyrighted work or to tell people information that they could use Mm -hmm. uh, to break that lock. And it's supposed to stop you from like ripping DVDs. Right. Um, But because all of the firmware for all of these Internet of Things things are copyrighted works. And because a law against breaking a lock is effectively like an invitation from the government to break your products and then they'll like police your space to make sure that nobody unbreaks them. Mm-hmm. We've had vendors from across the board start to avail themselves of this subsidy in the form of a law that allows them to do obnoxious things the market wouldn't sustain otherwise and profit from it. So if you buy a modern car, you can't fix it without access to the engine's diagnostics and the engine's diagnostics are encrypted and the only way to decrypt them is to get a license from the vendor, uh, from the manufacturer, in which you promise that you will only buy your parts also from the manufacturer that you won't buy third party Mm -hmm. parts. And so it means that GM and John Deere and every other automotive and equipment vendor can command like really high rents on these consumables. They can command really high margins on these consumables and the state will step in and prosecute and punish anyone who makes uh, third party diagnostic tools that jailbreak your car. Now that's like obnoxious and it's expensive and it's a ripoff, but that's not why I care about it. As bad as this is for, you know, me as someone who buys stuff, I'm way more worried about the fact that the law also criminalizes disclosing information about vulnerabilities in these systems. Because if you know about a flaw, a defect that the programmer introduced, then you can use that to jailbreak the system. But of course, jailbreaks are not just useful to people who want to add extended legitimate functionality to things that you own. They're also really useful for people who want to covertly attack you. 
right? If I know about a flaw in your phone or your car or your thermostat or your pacemaker, and your that device is already designed on the presumption that you are not to be trusted and you can't know what that device is doing and you can't shut down processes that are running in this protected mode, then I as a malware author or as a spyware author or as a surveillance vendor or as a lawful interception technology provider, if I can find that flaw and weaponize it, then I can attack you and your device will actually stop you from finding out that you're being attacked. That I'm remotely activating the cameras or remotely activating the uh, microphones or remotely sniffing your keystrokes or uh, um, remotely shutting down your car's ignition uh, when you get to the spot where it's easiest to carjack you, mm -hmm. right? And your car will actually take countermeasures to stop you from undoing what I'm doing because yeah. I'm impersonating the authorized party. That I think is the real problem. And vendors haven't um, introduced this, this anti-copying stuff because they want their devices to have security vulnerabilities. They've introduced it because they want to command monopoly rents on third-party add-ons, but they're depraved in their indifference mm -hmm. to the fact that this introduces these intractable security vulnerabilities that make you know Orwell look like a Sesame Street character. And um, EFF, you know, who I've gone back to work for, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, this, this quarter century old civil liberties group that works exclusively on technology and the law, um, we formed this project, this 10-year project, to reform the DMCA here in the United States and its versions all over the world by bringing a test case that challenges the constitutionality of the DMCA. Hmm, interesting. And the EFF, you've also noted, uh, is laying the legal groundwork for a free, fair, and open internet. Um, what kinds of challenges are they facing and what, what does their journey look like? Well, you know, Lawrence Lessig, who was on our board for many years and is a, a great friend and fellow of Electronic Frontier Foundation, he talks about how there are four factors that regulate our society. There's code, right? What's technologically possible? There's law, what's allowed? There's norms, what's socially acceptable? And then there's um, uh, markets, what's profitable? And in many cases, the right thing is profitable and um, also socially acceptable and legal and, uh, um, and, and also uh, technologically possible. But every now and again, uh, you run up against areas where one or more of those factors just aren't in harmony. So for example, uh, the FBI uh, and other law enforcement entities are really interested in being able to decrypt the communications of people that they are adverse to, the, the, the criminals or spies or other people that they don't like very much. And they know that crypto works. And so what they would like is to ensure that only um, weak crypto or crypto that has a known defect is used in all of our applications so that when there's a bad guy, they can decrypt that bad guy's communications. And the problem is we don't know how to make like a backdoor that only bad guys uh, are, prevent, are, are, are prevented from going through and the good guys can go through. Once you put a backdoor in, it's vulnerable to the same bad guys. And so here you have an instance where like, you know, some of our legal and normative assumptions are out of whack. Now the market assumptions are great, right? Like, you know, all other things being equal, vendors who provide better crypto will make more money, 
right? And so the markets are with us um, and the code is with us, right? You can make technology, you can make crypto that works so well that like if all the hydrogen atoms in the universe were turned into computers that did nothing until the heat of the universe but try and brute force the key, you run out of universe before you run out of possible keys, right? Um, so we know the code works and we know the uh, markets work there, but normatively, the war on terror has changed some of our ideas about what is and isn't socially acceptable. And legally, we exist in this very fraught zone where the um, director of the FBI is calling for backdoors in our crypto. And so every one of EFF's fights involves some area where either in order to be more profitable or because people have uh, normative ideas that are out of step with, with higher values about freedom and, and, and privacy or because uh, the law got it wrong or because something is technologically possible that we wish wasn't or vice versa. Uh, every, every one of our fights kind of boils down to one or more of those factors. So for example, this summer EFF is launching um, its own certificate authority called Let's Encrypt to try and overcome the fact that in order to have secure web sessions, you effectively need permission from a big corporation that issues you a certificate. Mm -hmm. And so we're gonna issue free certificates to all comers starting this summer. So we're doing something in markets and code that was missing. Interesting. Know. So shifting gears just a little bit, you had an interesting comment in a conversation with Tim O'Reilly recently where you said that you were interested in the idea of treating human beings as things that are good at sensing as opposed to things that need to be sensed. Can you share a little bit of your perspective on that and, and how you envision our interconnected Sure. I, I don't know that it works in every application. I think it's like a design uh, ethos that we can imply. And you know, the idea first came to me on a trip to Apple caught. And uh, there was an Imagineer I knew who was showing me around. He showed me this great mobile game that they developed where um, you had to run around. It was kind of to keep kids entertained while their parents drank wine in Epcot. <laughs> and and it, in every pavilion, um, there was a mystery you had to solve. And so the phone gave you clues to the mystery. They gave you a special phone. And then you had to go and take a picture of a, of a sensor, uh, of, a, of a target. Mm -hmm. And then it triggered an effect. It was a really cool little game. A lot of games that kind of operate on that on that basis where you're using a mobile device, what they do is they use the mobile device to track you. And then they figure out where you are based on where the mobile device is. And then they make inferences and award you points. Hmm. But what this was doing was actually the reverse. The phone was, was being used as a sensor. You as a human being demonstrated where you were by sensing something with the phone instead of being sensed by the phone. And so imagine like if you wanted to deliver services to people as they move through space. There's a couple of ways of thinking of it. One is that you, you make dossiers on every human being moving through your space, gathering whatever information you can about them to identify them and make predictions about their preferences. And then as they pass through certain locations, you try to alert them to opportunities, products, services, other people they might want to know and meet, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and that I think you could call like the creepy way. Mm -hmm. of doing it. But it's our, it's our model right now. That's how most location-based services work. But there's another way of thinking about it, which is that if you had a mobile device that was yours and that you trusted and that didn't give your information to other people, it could amass an enormous amount of both explicit and implicit information about you from like, when was the last time you went to the toilet or ate to, you know, what kind of conversations are you looking for? Or what products are you looking for? Or whatever. And then as that device moved through space, the things around it could advertise what kinds of services, opportunities, availabilities they had mm -hmm. to the device 
without the device ever acknowledging that it received them, without the device telling them a single thing about you, and because your device knows a lot about you, more than you would ever willingly give up to a third party, it could actually make better inferences about what you should be doing at this time in this place than you would get if it were the other way around, if you were the thing being sensed instead of you doing the, you being the thing that's doing the sensing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I quite like that model. I think that's a very exciting way of thinking about human beings as entities with agency and dignity and not just ambulatory wallets. Right. That's really interesting. Are there any companies that are moving in that direction? Like maybe Apple, Tim Cook has said that they're not interested in, in user data. Yeah, I, 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 it would be great to see that coming from Apple. I think Apple has uh, put a kind of um, uh, nailed its colors to the mast on this one. Uh, I know in the past, Apple's privacy policies have not been great. So it'd be nice to see that reflected in their privacy policies and in their application designs. One of the problems with, with Apple's products is that because there's a legal prohibition on reporting vulnerabilities in them because they're all locked to make sure that you only buy software from Apple's approved vendors. Right. Um, there's, the, there's the problem of knowing uh, whether or not Apple got it right. So that's one possible way that you could get bitten in the bum by your, your Apple devices. Maybe they made a mistake that's being exploited. But there's also the possibility that they've been subverted. I mean, one of the things we learned from Edward Snowden was that there were a lot of companies that tried to do the right thing and then in secret were commanded to do something wrong. And without the ability to independently verify what the device is doing, not only does that mean that you won't know what the device is doing, but it also means that people who would like to subvert it and have the power to compel silence from the firm are more likely to go to that firm and say, we will subvert your devices. And because it's against the law for other people to investigate your devices, we know that if we gag you, no third party will report it. So compare Apple and Android. Android, because it lacks this digital rights management and most of uh, its stack, there are lots more areas in Android where third parties can audit and report on vulnerabilities in Android without facing liability. Hmm. What that means is that if a government were to command Google to introduce backdoors into Android, that they would have some expectation that third parties who routinely already audit Android looking for vulnerabilities, looking for errors, would discover those vulnerabilities as they were introduced. But because people who do that research in Apple are unlikely to, to publish, have been chilled from publishing because of the DMCA, which, you know, Apple goes to the copyright office every three years and says, we would like it to remain a felony to report vulnerabilities in our products, right? If you're a government looking for a place to insert a backdoor where you know the company, once they, you've compelled their silence, no third party will, will get in the way of that, then Apple is the company you want to go to. Interesting. And so going back to this uh, sort of personal device, local ecosystem, what sort of effect, if, if that were achieved, what sort of effect would that have on advertising, do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, I th we, we had this like um, prediction about advertising that uh, personalizing an advertisement would never regress to the mean and would always and would always benefit from scale. So the idea being that if like if if I can sell you more stuff by customizing an ad today, that tomorrow you won't become inured 
to the personalization right. and return to the mean. And in every other area of advertising, there is regression to the mean, right? Like just look at old ads, right? And like a hundred years ago, you could sell soap by saying like, buy pear soap and you will be clean. And that like convinced people to buy pear soap. And like, they wouldn't have done it if it didn't work. But today, if that was your slogan, you wouldn't sell a lot of soap. And in the same way, it may be that when we started customizing ads, people didn't have any kind of mental defenses against it, and it worked against broad populations. But it also seems if you follow CPMs, the, the, the actual cost of buying ads, mm -hmm. that people have become very inured to personalized ads. And then there's this idea that if you could personalize ads more, once you know enough about people's preferences, you can find personalization opportunities that were missing before. You can make predictions. This is someone who's about to do something that is rare, and extremely profitable, like they're about to change detergents because people have long-lived allegiance to detergents, right. or they're about to buy a car or a house or send their kid to college. If you can know that before they do, then you can advertise to them uh, and, and get in at the moment that they don't even know that they're yet that they're about to look at it, and they go, "You're right. I should be buying a car." And I just saw that ad. Let me go look at that ad. And Facebook is kind of the foremost uh, proponent of this. Mm -hmm. And Facebook CPMs suck. Right. Right. They get great CPAs. Like if you actually are looking for a car and you buy a car and you go to the car website, they, they command like really high uh, uh, pay, payments from, you know, car loan companies. But they, their CPMs are, are really low, like to the point where like the last investor call they did, they were like, yeah, CPM is not where we're making most of our money these days. We've got like, we're getting tons of money from paid installs which like is not a surveillance business model thing. It's just VCs giving money to game companies that are giving it to Facebook to install games. Uh, and that, you know, presumably they think that eventually that will sell games, but no one has actually turned that. It's just basically VCs giving monies indirectly to, to Facebook. And then the other thing they're doing is watching for firms, companies that are signing up lots of followers. Mm -hmm. And while, you're in, while your number of followers is growing very quickly, every update you make goes to all of your followers. And then once you, uh, the number of followers is large enough that Facebook believes that your business depends on Facebook, they turn off the number of followers who see your updates to like, 5%. And then their salespeople call you and say it's like five bucks per thousand, right? This is not the surveillance business model. It's right. like it's the drug dealer business model, right. right? The first taste is free, but it's not the surveillance business model. So I think we're already in a world where like, you know, markets don't solve all of our problems, but markets actually do discipline firms, right? Like doing something that is not commercially viable over the long term, eventually your firm runs out of money compared to the firm that's doing something that's more commercially viable. And if you read between the lines on Facebook, although they're ideologically very committed and they have a culture that's built around surveillance, they're actually moving away from it in terms of their revenue models because it doesn't seem to be paying off. It's different with the government. Uh, and, you know, whatever benefits um, government programs can have, they're not disciplined by markets and they have different incentives. And what we see in governments is that there's huge procurement driven incentives to do surveillance, right? Surveillance has a business model. Companies that supply surveillance equipment to Congress to generate enough profits that they can lobby Congress to extend surveillance. We see if you look at the kind of uh, lobbying money that goes into Congress, you see gigantic amounts of lobbying from companies that provide surveillance services to the state to continue and expand surveillance programs. And so the, you know, the fact that the state continues to surveil doesn't mean that the state is getting value from surveillance. It just means that companies are able to extract value from surveillance procurements and, and change Congress's mind about surveillance. Right. Interesting. 
Interesting. So just to close our conversation today, what people or projects are you following? What are you finding personally interesting? Huh, that's a, a great question. Well, you know, my, my uh, wife has a startup, if I can plug that. <laughs> Absolutely. My, my, my wife, Alice Taylor, is the CEO of Makey Lab, which does 3D printed toys and games. And so I, I'm privy to all the stuff that the public hasn't seen yet. And I think there's some very exciting stuff coming from Makey Lab. Oh, interesting. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. You can keep up with Corey's work on his blog, craphound.com, and you can reach him directly through his Twitter handle, at Dr. O. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 